Good morning, my name is Russell and I'm one of the elders here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Psalm 11, 1 through 7. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. You may be seated. Psalm 11, as we continue our summer in the Psalms. Psalm 11, the context of the Psalm before we jump into it, is sort of a secret council. You imagine King David uh, sitting around with his important people, thinking about and considering what ought to be their next move in the kingdom to provide security and uh, good economy and all that sort of uh, thing. And what we have here is a discovery that somebody likely very close to David, is not a friend, but is in fact an enemy. And this friend is giving David counsel. And this counsel that this friend is giving David is basically this. David, uh, your life is in danger, and what you ought to do is you should run away. You should run to the mountains and find refuge. And you could uh, imagine, David, if you've read any of uh, his story in the Bible had plenty of places he knew where to hide. He knew where all the best caves were. He knew where all the best strongholds were. And so David, if needed, on his own, could certainly survive uh, hidden away for many, many years, no problem whatsoever. And this is the counsel that he is being given. However, this counsel is not someone who is trying to keep David's best interests in mind. What this person is challenging David to do is, you know what? God has lost track of you. Since you can't trust God, you should run and hide. It's not to say David shouldn't have run and hidden. There are certainly times when a person should attend to their personal safety. But what this person's counsel is, you can't trust God, so you got to handle your own business. So David, run and hide because God has forgotten you. And what David is going to argue is, no, no, I am going to trust the Lord. And the title of the message today is Aware of the Enemy's Scheme. So what we're going to discover in the psalm is how the enemy tries to create division between the individual and God. And once we understand how the enemy is working, it provides us the means to avoid the damage the scheme is trying to cause. So verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 11, aware of the enemy's scheme. And here's the scheme. The enemy uses fear to drive us from God. The enemy uses fear to drive us from God. And it's a deceptive tactic. It's, a, it's an emphasis on deceiving the individual, to be, convince the individual that God is not trustworthy. He won't take care of you. And you've got to take care of yourself. And deception is really, really important when it comes to enemies. In fact, deception in the military is, is really, really important. There's a, there's a principle in the military, and I only like the principle because it's got a funny name. It's the Magruder principle. I feel bad for anybody named Magruder. If you're named Magruder, God bless you, but that's funny. The Magruder principle is this. It's a very simple, deceptive tactic. The Magruder principle is simply this. You want to deceive the enemy by 
convincing them that what they already think is true actually is true. So they have these sort of preconceived notions that what they think is true is actually true. So this took place in 1991. There was a little war that went on. I don't know if you remember uh, Operation Desert Storm. A guy named Storman Norman Schwarzkopf. Anybody familiar with this? The younger kids are like, who is this? I was in high school and all of us were getting ready to run to Canada because we didn't want to get drafted. <laughs> Not really, but uh, we were worried. I mean, war is going down. We hadn't had a war in a while and here we were. And so uh, they knew Saddam Hussein believed that the Allied coalition was going to go straight north out of Saudi Arabia and go up to Kuwait City. That was, everybody believed that. Everybody knew that. that everybody, and they knew that's what Saddam Hussein. And so the Magruder principle says, let's do something different, but let's convince him what he already thinks is absolutely right. So that's what they did. They had the Marines out in the Gulf of, Me or Gulf of Mexico. No, they would be misplaced. <laughs> they would be, we would call that lost. In the Persian Gulf, and they were doing all kinds of exercises about what it would look like if the Marines made an amphibious assault into Kuwait City made all kinds of ruckus. And secretly, and this, I won't go into all the details, rather interesting though, they took this gigantic group of people and they moved them way off to the west. It's called the right hook. They didn't know what was going on. In fact, Saddam Hussein was so convinced that we were gonna move straight up north out of Saudi Arabia to Kuwait City that when he discovered there was a giant uh, force out to the west, he still refused to send somebody to uh, guard that, right, that left flank. Because he was convinced. That's how the Magruder principle works. It convinces you, no, what I think is right, everything is right, and this force came in. Those were all those videos came in where all the forces went in unopposed because the deceptive tactic worked. Because the enemy, the job is to convince you what you already think, it's probably true. So this is how the enemy works and how he's working on David here and how he works in you. You already kind of wonder if God's paying attention, don't you? I know in church you have to act religious. No, I don't know. Don't you, I mean, don't you sometimes when you're praying at night or you're uh, kind of thinking about the Lord, don't you already in the back of your mind kind of go, like, does he have my best interests in mind? You're, it's already sort of there. So what the enemy does, he just comes in and confirms your notions. The, the Lord doesn't care. Do you know what you need to do? You need to run away and hide because he is not going to look out for you. And that's what the enemy is telling King David here in uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. He wants to use our already existing fear that God doesn't care and convince us in that fear that we need to run away from God because God's not listening. Look at verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge, David says. And he responds to this counselor by saying, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? All he's simply arguing to this person is this. If I'm taking refuge in the Lord... How could I run away? By and that would basically say, I don't take refuge in the Lord. The enemy wants the psalmist to be afraid. The enemy wants the psalmist David to flee. And David refuses to because he says, no, no, fleeing right now would confirm that I don't trust the Lord. It would confirm that I don't trust the Lord. And it would confirm that I am, I am weak in the Lord. And David is saying, no, I take refuge refuge in the Lord. So he understands the scheme of the enemy. The scheme of the enemy is to try to create division between God and his loved one by convincing the loved one God isn't really worth trusting and God doesn't have their best interest in mind. This is important to understand how the enemy works because the enemy has strategies because God can't be conquered. 
God is God. And so the goal is to get us to run away from God. There's another way the enemy works, and it's by creating division. And this occurs over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I just want to give you another example in your scripture of a scheme of the enemy. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth. If anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure, and not to put it too severely, to all of you. Let me just pause there and give you the context. Paul is talking about an individual in the church who has committed grievous sin. If you want the details of that sin, you can go read 1 Corinthians. Committed grievous sin. What we know by looking at 2 Corinthians is at some point this individual, having committed this terrible sin which caused a lot of hurt in the church community, this person has repented. And they've said, you know what? I was wrong. That's sin. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to walk in fellowship with the Lord and his church. And this person has repented. But the church is still suffering under the damage that was caused by this person's terrible sin. And so Paul is saying, if anyone has caused pain, he hasn't caused it to me. This guy didn't hurt me, Paul says. But he's hurt all of you. For verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So Paul says here, listen, this hurt that he's experienced within this community of believers, I think it's done its thing. It's worked out in him a heart of repentance by God's grace, and now he is ready to turn back and seek forgiveness. And what Paul tells the people of this church is, you ought to forgive him. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him, this person who has caused you harm through his sin. Can you believe that? Can you believe Paul would have the audacity to tell a group of believers they have to forgive somebody? Verse 9, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be what? Listen, this is really important. We would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul here says we need to understand the scheme of the enemy. Most of us here, what's the scheme of the enemy? The scheme of the enemy was to get this guy to do naughty things and to cause harm in the church. Now, certainly that was the case. But Paul says that's not the end of the battle plan for the enemy. What's the battle plan now? Now that he has repented to keep one another from forgiving each other that there might be disunity. That's the plan. Now, why would that be a scheme of the enemy? Because what did Jesus do for us? Jesus forgave us. And so then Jesus says to us, since I have forgiven you, what should we do to others? We should forgive them. Because what they have done to you is less than what you have done to Jesus. Is that true? Right. So what I've done some, I have done some bad things to people, and they were pretty bad. I'm kind of a bad guy. That's the way it is. That's why I need Jesus, right? But what I did to others is nothing compared to what I did to Jesus. And what others have done to me is nothing compared to what I have done to Jesus. Seems like there's a parable about that. Anybody read this parable? Parable of the servant who gets forgiven a billion dollars and won't forgive his buddy who took away his $5 McDonald's gift card? <laughs> right? That's what happens. And so what the enemy does is say, you are forgiven. You're, if you're showing up at church, it says, I've been, you're saying, I, I need forgiveness. But I refuse to forgive that Yahoo because he's a moron. <laughs> what you don't understand how bad that person is. 
So this is the scheme of the enemy. Try to get Jesus' followers to not act like Jesus. How important was this to Jesus? That we might have unity, not because we're holy, but in the midst of repentance. How important is it to Jesus? Real important. Uh, John chapter 17. This is Jesus speaking. I do not ask for these only, praying for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? He's talking about you. That they, that is you and I, may all be one. That's Jesus' prayer for you and I. He's going to pray a prayer that's going to get recorded in the Bible. We're going to read it 2,000 years later. What does he pray for? That the air conditioner doesn't break. No. What's he pray for? That we escape suffering. No. What's he pray for? That you and I would be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' prayer for us is that we might outdo the schemes of the enemy by having unity even though we shouldn't. A willingness to forgive when others turn in repentance seeking, rec seeking reconciliation. And Jesus says there's a scheme of the enemy that's going to seek to divide you as a body of believers. It's going to seek to divide you from me. How does he divide us from Christ through this? He separates us. We, we walk away from Christ when we refuse to forgive others. Because our relationship with God should leave us to, lead us to forgive. This is the enemy's scheme. To use fear to drive us from God. To use revenge to drive us from each other. To cause division within the body of believers and to, to gin up fear in our hearts that we might seek refuge in our own selves instead of in the Lord. How do we ignore the scheme of the enemy? Oh, it's really, really easy. Thankfully, isn't that good news when something's easy? Just forgive people you shouldn't. Because there's certain people you should forgive, right? I should forgive people when they don't park very well. You know, sometimes you pull in and you say, really? Okay, you're in the line, but there is nowhere for my car here. Okay, I'll give you that. But am I going to forgive you if you drive in the left lane on the freeway and no get over? No. No, that's the unforgivable sin. You've read about it in Scripture. Get over. You're going 45. Get over. I will tailgate you. I will let you know that you are not in the Lord's will. Get in the right lane. So there are certain things. There are certain things we don't want to forgive. There are certain things that, are too, that you don't, and, and usually we start with something like this. And these are significant hurts we experience. You don't know what they did. You don't know, and you don't know how much damage it cost. You don't know how much I lost emotionally, financially, relationally. I, I was out of job. I was out of reputation. I was out of family. These are things that ought not to be forgiven. We ought to seek revenge if you're going to pursue the world. And, and what Jesus says, I want you to outdo the scheme of the devil. And forgive people you shouldn't. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 11. Verses 2 and 3. Psalm 11, verses 2 and 3. This counselor continues. 
Behold, King David, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So this person continues to declare, here's what the enemy's going to do. There's an assassin. This is an arrow in the dark. This isn't somebody standing in the battlefield. This is somebody hidden away at night behind some foliage with an arrow. This is someone secretly looking to end the life of David. This is to induce fear in David because where can you, would you, you don't see an assassin before they kill you. And then, and then the, the, the deceiver continues. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So now it's a religious argument. David, David, if you die, what will happen to Israel? What will happen to Judah? Think of the children. Guard your own life because people, people need you. This wicked uh, person pursues the instigating fear into the life of David that he might abandon his faith in the Lord and instead look for his own interests. What can the righteous do in such a situation? What can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? Well, this made me think of another passage over in the New Testament, if you don't mind. Ephesians chapter 6. It's a long section, and you've heard it before. I'm going to read it again. Uh, it's Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. I'm going to read the whole thing. I always say this, just to remind you, if you came to church and you said, wait, people are reading a lot of the Bible. That's, you, know, you came to church, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, his, in the strength of his might. What do we do when we're pursued by the wicked and they're shooting arrows at us? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish, listen, all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. What can the righteous do when the schemes of the enemy are to pierce us with his arrows? And to sum it up, is to put on Christ. Put on Christ's righteousness. Put on Christ's salvation. Live in Christ's truth, the word of God. Rest in Christ by faith. Rest in Christ in the truth of gospel. The things of Christ, who Christ is, and who we believe him to be based on the word of God is our protection Amen. from the enemy. He is the one that keeps us from harm. His strength allows us to stand. Not our own strength. Our, our strength is nothing. But it means our routine must be, if we're going to stand against the enemy in who Christ is, our routine is to put on Christ. Right. And we have to assume that our default is to take off Christ and do our own thing. And so we have to have an intentionality about it. How do I rest in Christ by faith? How do I pursue Christ in righteousness? How do I rest in Christ in the truth of his word? How can I rest in his word if I'm not in it? How can I rest in Christ if I don't pray? 
And so what we do is we, we recognize the enemy's scheme. The enemy's scheme is to fill us with fear. And our response is, I want to put on Christ. I want to wear him as my garments. And that needs to be our routine. Aware of the enemy's schemes, he is going to use fear to drive us from God. But we recognize when we trust Christ for our reconciliation with God, he becomes our strength. And we can rest in him. All right, let's look at verses 4 through 7 of Psalm 11. Aware of the enemy's schemes, we can rest in God's strength. Verse 4, we sort of uh, would understand that David now is responding to this person telling him to run away. Here's what he says. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him, that is God, rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his strength. Aware of the enemy's scheme, we can rest in God's strength. This is like waking up in the middle of the night and there is a noise and it frightens you and when you recognize God's strength you flip the light on and realize it's nothing. This happened to me the other night. I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard water dripping. That's not too big a deal, you know, with sinks and whatnot. But about a year ago we had a leak in our washing machine and it caused a lot of damage to our home. And so when I'm still kind of in that mode, if I hear water dripping, I will hunt it down. <laughs> So I don't want to go through that again. I will. I am the water dripping fiend. I will look and I will look. And uh, so I woke up and I was like, man, I hear water dripping. So what do you at first check all the sinks, right? Okay, all the sinks are off. Okay. Maybe it was nothing. So I lay back down. Nope, there it is. Okay, maybe the sprinklers are on. It's not the right time. So I'm now I'm out in the backyard listening for sprinklers. Nothing. Plus one of So I went back. Okay, I'm hearing things. Lay back down. No, I'm hearing it. So now I'm, this is the middle of the night. You know, everybody else is sleeping. I'm laying on the floor. Because now I'm imagining a pipe has broken into the house, right? So I'm laying on the floor, listening along the floor. This, anybody else done this? No. No, okay, it's just me. It's awkward now. Okay, maybe you've done it with the beeping fire detector or fire alarm. You're trying to figure out which one is beeping. I don't know. So I'm laying on the ground. And I'm getting a little frustrated. And I am, I am minutes away from going under my house in the middle of the night. I mean, this is, this is where I'm at. And then I look, and on the little shelf under the TV is the DVD player, and someone has left it on. And the disc is spinning. And guess what that sounds like? It sounds like dripping water, that disc. That disc is broken, by the way. I don't know if you, uh, that disc doesn't exist. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I, di I didn't uh, break this. But, so all of a sudden, this thing, it was huge. I had all these imaginations of, of, once again, having to live in a hotel and the house being tore up for nine months and all these things. And, and now once I realize what it is, oh, oh, well, it's nothing. I can go right back to sleep. As you can imagine, that didn't happen either. So <laughs> but once we understand what the enemy is up to and we understand what God is up to, we look at it and say, oh, wait, this is nothing. This is, this is ridiculous. And this is what David is saying in, in verses 4 uh, through 7. In reality, the enemy is powerless against God. And the best place for any person to be is in a place of constant reliance on the Lord. The enemy makes us afraid. And what does that make us do? Rely on the Lord. And what's the best place for any person to be? 
is in a place of reliance on the Lord. So what the enemy does when we respond in faith is instead of causing division between us and God, we run to the Lord and we're actually in the best place we could possibly be, which is pursuing the Lord and resting in Him. The Lord is in His holy temple, verse 4. The Lord's throne in His heaven and He sees everything. The Lord knows everything that is going on. He knows the heart of the individuals. He knows the heart of your heart. He knows the heart of people who have hurt you. And what he asks is, when the Lord looks at you, what does he see? Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. So the Lord can look at us and know, are you righteous or are you not righteous? How do you become righteous? So that when the Lord sees you, he recognizes you are righteous. How do you do that? By stopping swearing, giving up drinking, attending church regularly. I know people who have done all of these things and they are not righteous. The only way to have righteousness so that when God sees you, he recognizes you are righteous, is for someone to give it to you, and that person is Jesus. So the only way to have righteousness is to trust that Jesus gives you righteousness. And so God sees you as righteous. This is an identity. Am I seen as righteous by God? And to refuse God's righteousness granted by his son Jesus is to voluntarily step out of the experience of God's love. So God pours out his love and grace, and we can choose to receive it or not. And when we choose not to receive it, we step out of it and say, God, I don't want your love and kindness and grace. And how does the Bible describe that experience? The Lord tests the righteous, verse 5, but his soul hates the wicked. That bothers you as much as it bothers me. I don't want to think about God hating anybody, but what he's describing here is the, is the individual who has chosen to move themselves out, the, out of the experience of God's love and grace and instead into the experience of God's judgment and condemnation because they refuse to receive God's kindness and righteousness. So God looks at the righteous, and when he sees the righteous, we can recognize that he has our best interest in mind because he has the best interest in mind for his son Jesus, who we wear as our Savior. Look at verse 6. Let him, that is God, rain coals down on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The righteous have nothing to fear because God doesn't judge the righteous. But those who have removed themselves from God's favor by refusing his grace and kindness will experience his judgment. This has happened. This is describing something we're familiar with. There was a town called Sodom and Gomorrah. And God gave them an opportunity to respond in repentance and faith. They chose not to. And so therefore, God gave them condemnation because of their rebellion against God. This is going to happen again for all who would refuse God's grace. There's a book in the Bible. I think it's the last one. It's called Revelation. Are you familiar with this book? Or did you just read books about the book? This one's shorter than the books about the book. So Revelation is very, very simple. Have you ever wanted to understand Revelation? Here we go. I'm going to tell you. Here we go. It's very, very simple. I mean, this is probably, to me, it's the easiest book in the Bible to understand. Chapter 1, Jesus shows up. He's awesome. He's glowy Jesus. He's like on fire. This is Jesus who is about to get in people's business. Then there's two chapters, chapter uh, 2 and 3, telling churches how they ought to behave given the fact that Jesus is big. Right? 
Jesus is big. Churches, here's how you ought to behave. And if you don't, bad things happen. We'll just sum it up that way. Chapters 4 and 5 is the throne room of God and the, a lamb shows up which looks like he has been slain. Who do you think that is? Jesus, but he's called a lion. So what this is, this is the king of the universe who has clearly sacrificed himself for the universe. And he says, I am glad to give you my righteousness and kindness. And if you choose not to have it, read the rest of Revelation. That's all it is. Because we think Lamb Jesus is just, well, you can take my grace, but if not, it's good. No, if not, it's judgment. And that's what's being described here in Psalm 11. It's, I have extended to you my love and my grace and my mercy, and you can receive it. But to say no to it, you must, if God is just, which is you must experience judgment. Because to not experience God's grace is to be under judgment. The righteous, though, have nothing to fear because God himself will fight our battles for us. Verse 6 delivers us from the need of revenge. When people wrong us, we can simply say, I'll let you deal with God on that. I'll let you deal with God on that. Because we don't have to seek revenge because God will always make things right. We can rest in God's strength. You might be pretty good at revenge. God's better. Let him handle your business. And instead, you can just rest in God's grace and forgiveness. I want to look very quickly. I was deciding if we have time, and uh, we do. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 4. It has some common language with Psalm 11, and I wanted to just touch on it briefly because it has some similar themes in similar language. Isaiah 66, it's right after Isaiah 65. You're having trouble finding it. Let me read it. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. There's that language that we see in Psalm 11. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? Talking about the temple here. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares, excuse me, declares the Lord. This is the one to whom I will look. Listen. That's what he's saying. This is the one to whom... I extend my approval. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Verse 3. Now he's going to describe the person who does not have God's approval. He who slaughters an ox. This is a sacrifice. is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb. Like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering. Like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in, the, in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So he compares the righteous and the wicked. And the wicked in this case are very religious. The righteous do what? They are humble, contrite in spirit, tremble at the word. This is someone who reads God's word, recognizes they aren't like that, and tremble. God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Give me your grace and kindness again. 
And in humility, we experience uh, restoration and transformation when we read God's word, recognize we aren't like Jesus, and we repent and turn to him. And how often do we do that? Just every day. That's, that's the righteous. The righteous confess early and often. The wicked, though, are religious. He slaughters an ox. They're presenting offerings. Why do people get religious like this? Because they want to have their religion and have their fun. So the goal is, let's even it out. So uh, my religion needs to outdo the fun stuff I'm doing on the weekends. So that's what the religious are doing. They're saying, I got to make up for my sin, and I want to give up my sin, so I'm just going to do some religious stuff to sort of make up the difference. And God says, you can keep your religion. I have no need of that. Because righteousness comes from repentance, and a humility of heart. There's a false righteousness which God rejects. He has no need for your religion. He's looking at our hearts. Are we willing to take our refuge in him? Are we willing to take our refuge in him? Now, many of you, I can tell, you're religious people. I don't mean that as an insult. You say, well, that's, that's great news, isn't it? I mean, is it great news that you don't have to earn God's favor? And I actually happen to think it's great news for people like me who sin a lot. It's great news. But you know, it's funny how people don't always respond faith. We would think this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he saves sinners who respond to him, would be such great news that when people hear, your religion is useless, turn God to, to God in faith, people would just say, what a great deal. Doesn't that sound like a great deal? No. It's a terrible deal according to most. Look at uh, verse, or I should say Acts chapter 7. Because Stephen... Quotes here from Isaiah 66, also referring to Psalm 11. And he preaches the same message I just shared with you there. He did it better, obviously. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, 49, quoting from Isaiah 66 and Psalm 11. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Did not my hand make all these things? And so then he sends, says to the religious people this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. What of the prophets did you not persecute? And they killed the one who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. And you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And all the religious people heard Stephen's message and said, Oh, you're right, man, we really blew it. Oh. No, what'd they do? They came forward. It was an invitation, and they brought rocks with them, and they stoned him to death. Because that's what religious people do when you tell them you can be righteous without religion. They freak out. You can be righteous without religion, they freak out. But look, who won this? Verse 56 of Acts 7, I love it. Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Who's winning here? The one who sees Jesus. Amen. The one who sees Jesus. Why does this matter? Acts, or Psalm 11, 7. Look back at it. Psalm 11, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Listen. The upright shall behold his face. The upright shall behold his face. This is the goal of the righteous believer. Not to impress others. Not to have a good reputation. Not to gain God's blessing, although that's nice. Not to live clean and right so we can live for a long time. What's the goal of the righteous believer? To behold the face of our Savior. That's the goal. Anything else is a lesser thing. A much lesser thing. And this is what Stephen saw. He had nothing to fear. 
He saw the face of Christ and the rocks flying towards him offered no danger. His refuge was in the Lord because the best place for any individual to be is in the place of having to rely on God. And that's where Stephen was in that moment. And the enemy was powerless. A couple of things to close with. Our hope and our glory is to behold the face of the Lord. I don't know what your purpose is in having a relationship with God, but one of the things that ought to grow in us over time is to have our relationship with God be primarily motivated by a desire to see our Savior. There's lots of other benefits we gain from righteousness in Christ. We gain community of believers. We gain closeness with one another and with God. We gain the removal of shame and guilt. These are all wonderful benefits of relationship with God. But the goal of the believer is to behold the face of Christ. That our heart needs to be moved over time. Do we value God's presence in our lives? And I hope that our hearts are moved in humility and contriteness to do just that. Another thing I'll just mention here, as you can tell, I'm deciding whether I'm going to say it or not because I may get in trouble. I don't know. Depends on if any religious people came to church today. Nothing drives religious people more crazy than calm gospel people. Because something bad will go on in the country or in the community or in the world and, and, you'll, and a religious person will usually start with something like this. I hope... I'm not trying to be too much like anybody in the room. <clears throat> Can you believe they would? And a gospel person is like, yeah, but, but Jesus gives them grace. Well, don't, think you, don't you think they should stop? Yeah, I do. I'm not going to be kept up at night because my righteousness is not on their ability to behave. My righteousness is not on my ability to behave. Well, don't you think you should be better than you are? What do you think? Yeah. Like, I mean, how far along are you in Christ? What, what's your measure? Have you ever measured yourself? Scale of one to ten, where do you put yourself? Don't say it out loud, oh my goodness. And don't say it for your spouse. Holy cow, I don't have time for those appointments. <laughs> so uh, scale of one to ten, where are you? Don't say, you know, think of it. Uh, you're like, this is terrible. Why are we doing this? Wait, where should you be? So did anybody... Oh, no, I'm way ahead of the game. Man, I'm just hitting home runs all day long. See, all of us say, all of us say, like not even close. I mean, is that, is that true? All of us are going, I can't believe I'm still here. And, and nothing drives religious people more crazy than you not being far enough along and being okay with it because Jesus is your righteousness. This is driving crazy because Jesus is your righteousness. The gospel gives us freedom in Christ to rest. He made me righteous so I can pursue him simply with a heart of contrition that wants to know him through the truth of his word. Right. Finally, David says in, in verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. Uh, someone told me this week they uh, like to go to bird refuge is. Is that a plural? Bird refugees? No? I don't think that's right. And look at birds. I don't know why people do this, but this is the thing people do. I'm not making fun of ornithologists or birders or whatever you, you do. I just would rather do other things. Um, but you go to these refuges, 
and birds, I guess, land there, right? And this is the thing. I guess out in uh, Klamath Falls, they built all these refuges, and the birds didn't come because they realized the birds liked the farms that the farmers built. Because the farms have water and food. And they built these beautiful refuges. Oh, birds will love this. And guess what? Birds didn't like them. They liked the farms because that's where there was lots of food and a lot of water. So what they ended up having to do was change the refuge to be like a farm. So the birds would come to the refuge. But this is what we have to do. The difference between us and this little silly illustration is this. We need to change the kind of refuge we want. What we need to recognize is the refuge we need is the Lord. That's the refuge you need. There's lots of refuges you deeply desire for. There are relationships in your life and you say, if these were finally mended, everything would be fine. That's a refuge. You say that broken relationship, I need refuge from it by restoration. That's a lesser refuge. Some of us have financial challenges and we have a number in mind. If I could just get X amount of dollars, I'm gonna be fine. I'll be able to make it into retirement or whatever. That's a refuge, it's a lesser refuge. Some of it's health. We have ailments and aches and pains and all these sorts of things. If I could just feel better, get the right treatment, if my knee stopped bothering me, whatever it might be, everything would be fine. And that is a refuge, it's just not a real good one. And what the Bible is telling us to do by faith, say, what's the best refuge for me? The best refuge for any person is living in the place of total reliance on God. That God is my stuff, he's my all. That everything else can fall apart, Look at uh, verse 3 of Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Keep trusting God. Because you can have the foundations. In the Lord we are set. So now that we've gone through Psalm 11, we can be aware of the enemy's schemes. He's going to use fear to drive us from God. That, that's going to happen. Call that Monday. It's going to happen before you get home today. The enemy's going to try to use fear to convince you God doesn't care. Now that you know the scheme, you can say, no, that's a lie. God cares more deeply than I even know. Secondly, because we know the scheme of the enemy, we can rest in God's strength and recognize that reliance on God is the absolute best place for us to be. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us to give righteousness to sinners like us. God, I would pray for those of us who are believers and... Sometimes we lose sight of the fact of how much we need you and your righteousness every day. We've gotten fooled into the fact that we think we need to be, that we need to be amazing. God, would you remind us again from your word today that resting is you in you is recognizing that you are amazing and we are not. God, I would pray for those who are here today who don't know you, and I would ask, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would move in their hearts to trust Jesus today for righteousness. There is not a sin that keeps us from God if we are willing to come to you in faith. And God, I pray that you would give us strength and wisdom to discern the schemes of the enemy and instead rest and trust in you because you are our refuge. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song.